Hey folks, this is Dr. C and welcome to my office hours. Uh, today, Barry and I have a very special guest in the office and that is Dr. Julian Chambliss, uh, a longtime um, colleague of mine, I guess. We presented at places together and that kind of thing. Colleague uh, with a question mark. Oh, I'm always curious as to whether or not that applies to when you yeah, work at like, the yes. same institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. It, right. uh, yeah. Okay. Yes, you are a colleague. That does, you don't have to just work at the same place to be a colleague, right? Well, yeah, I, I was going to say, colleague is like, there's there's family, friends, colleagues, and we're now questioning whether or not he's even a colleague. <laughs> I was not prepared for the dynamic of both of you giving me <laughs> so let's move forward. Julian, what should people know about you? Um, my name is Julian Chambliss. I am a professor of English at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berryman Curator of History at the MSU Museum, and I'm a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Age Research, which is CEDAR at MSU. And I also co-lead the Digital Humanities Literary Cognition Lab at the, in the Department of English, and I lead the Graphic Possibilities Research Workshop in the Department of English. And those are all reasons for why your Instagram is very active because goodness gracious, <laughs> I see you traveling all the time such that I do wonder, do you in fact have students <laughs> and what are you teaching? <laughs> I do have students. Um, and right now, of course, thanks, you know, whenever you're listening to this, maybe in the future, there will be no pandemic. But right now I just tra travel everywhere virtually. But yeah. of course, um, as is the nature of these things, and one of the ways that we are colleagues is that we travel to the same conferences and we are on panels together yep. and, and give talks and such. So, yeah. 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 Uh, we actually met in. How did we end up on that panel at DragonCon? Because that's where we met the first time. Was it? Right. Phil yeah. Put Phil, Phil put that together. Yeah. Phil yeah. So Mark for, Cunningham. Yeah. Yeah. Who we interviewed. Uh, a couple of days ago as we record this now. And so his episodes will already be up, but, and he and I got into a, a mild disagreement about when we actually met because his memory's failing him. Um, <laughs> and while I love Phil, he's losing his grip on reality. And Phil, if you're listening, I mean all of this with my chest. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, but yeah, Phil put together the, the panel we presented at Dragon Con. So for those that aren't familiar, Dragon Con, is essentially nerd Mardi Gras, wherein 70,000 nerds descend on Atlanta. And it's amazing and it's glorious. And the only part that I really ever feel bad about going to is the parade, because inevitably you have this like in the parade uh, for Dragon Con, which goes for a long time. You have people dressed up in the cosplay, that kind of stuff. Right. But there's always the, the two times that we've been there, there has always been this like battalion of people dressing up as uh, the 300. Right from the movie. And <laughs> like, I'm usually fine when I'm there, but that is an acute moment of self awareness and how much I just have not taken care of myself over time. Cause those <laughs> folks are walking around in the, you know, in like the Speedos and the right. capes with the 5% body fat and things like that. Right. But, but in all seriousness, um, Dragon Con also hosts the Comic and Pop Art Conference. Right. Which, just to be clear, it does abbreviate to CPAC. And when you tell your friends you're going to CPAC and they are very confused, uh, which has happened to me a couple of times, um, it's important to clarify, not to be confused with the conservative political action uh, conference. Right, yeah. Although you, <laughs> people will confuse those too. <laughs> yeah. um, it's funny because you're, uh, I think 
a lot of people who aren't in pop culture studies don't realize that there's academic conferences that happen at these big cons, right? So San Diego oh, yeah. famously has a comics art conference, mm-hmm. right? And 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 so does WonderCon has a, a conference mm-hmm. and and DragCon has one too. But they just think like you you somehow getting a school to pay for you to go. Mm-hmm to a con i'm like it's not my fault that the regulations say i gotta buy a ticket to the con to go to the yeah. academic conference that's how they set it up that's not on me i am and going on- to do a thing and they made it so i had to go to the con if that is where the thing is happening that is justification i think i would also use that argument to say why my department should fund my bar tab because that's where the most important networking happens um is I, I think that I think I think that's hard hard to argue against and it's true no matter what conference you go to. It's true. But of course, we are not going to pay for your alcohol game. Yeah. No institution <laughs> a, has that uh, kind of money. The national listen, <laughs> listen. Uh I I've I can't I can't drink like I used to. Uh, I shouldn't. So no. Um I'll make that pitch to my department chair next year when the National Communication Association has a conference in New Orleans. Um so oh, yeah. moving on to what we're actually here for. Uh Julian, um so you've been doing uh, comic studies. That is like your primary area of focus. And in, you also uh a few years ago helped put together and co-edited and co-authored a book called Ages of Heroes, Eras of Men, which is a great textbook for teaching under uh, undergraduate classes on communication study. I'm uh, sorry, on comic studies. Right. I used it in my communication department because uh, in the spring of 2021, uh, I taught a class on superhero symbolism in society, and I knew that this was the book that I needed to use. Um, because this book does such an interesting job of getting into comics as sort of reflections of society and in that way, historical and cultural artifacts. Now we used it through the lens of communication studies, which means we also considered these somewhat, uh, perpetually evolving texts, but it was great to have that historical grounding to look at the environments that gave birth to these comics. Right. So, uh, I know that one of your favorite superheroes is Iron Man for reasons that escape me, but I get that. Um, not everyone has great taste, but why is Iron Man <laughs> such a great, like, symbol to study or symbol to look at when we try to understand social commentary? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's good to hear you say that this works really well in the classroom because it was designed to be a thing that was used in the classroom because I was teaching a class on superheroes in American experience. Um... It was actually a class called uh, American Graphic Media at my old institution, Rollins College. And when I was designing that class with my colleague, Bill Satovsky, who's also one of the editors on that volume, we wanted a book like this and there wasn't one. And so we taught the class, but we were like, I don't understand. And then I literally remember having a conversation where I was like, I don't understand how this book, a book like this doesn't exist, given how effective comics could be at teaching about American history because basically I was asked to teach a modern American history course for freshmen and I was like oh yeah comics you can totally use that and so when you think about it and I thought about it almost immediately in the context of a character like Iron Man because I had been working on a paper sort of looking at American defense ideology uh, through the lens of Iron Man and the great thing about comics and I, and I talk about this a lot as a someone who teaches about comics and lectures about comics. Comics are an archive of the American experience. They are, in particular, 
you know, my, my degree is in history and I, I think of myself as an urbanist and I think of comics as an urban topic. And in some ways, the comic book form and um, the transformation of the American urban landscape are tightly connected, right? The, the commercialization, industrialization of the late 19th, early 20th century um, depends very heavily on visual narratives that we can associate with consumer culture that are codified, amplified through comics. And the superhero genre, which is a uniquely American genre, tends to capture the transformation of the United States into a global power in the 20th century. So, you know, central to that transformation is the rise of a sort of security narrative, right? Post-war, you know, the Cold War containment ideology. And Iron Man's a great character to try to understand that idea. This is a character that comes at the height, at, uh, at some level, of the Marvel Silver Age transformation, right? You know, flawed characters. Yep. But in particular, Tony Stark is a character that speaks very, very directly to both the aspirations of the American mind related to armament, defense, war making, uh, you know, foreign adventure, and also the challenges related to that in terms of like the moral stance that the United States likes to take, right? So you have a very uh, a kind of character whose origin story originally is, is tied directly to an emerging engagement on the part of the United States in Vietnam. You know, his original origin story is he's, you know, doing a weapons demo in Vietnam for the American military that goes wrong, he gets captured. And his first act as Iron Man is blowing up a Viet Cong base, right? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, he's a character very much tied up in a kind of domestic containment and security set of concerns. His early villains are people like the Black Widow, who originally is a Russian spy, seeking mm -hmm. to steal information about American security and, and things like that. He's also a primary character in the kind of post-war concern about um, extremism and fanaticism. So you think about an uh, organization like Hydra in comics, how it... It, it these sort of like you know organizations that are connected to fascist ideology that persist and 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 pop up after the, the World War II as mm -hmm. threats to order, and you have this sort of security apparatus called Shield, and Tony Stark is the primary weapons designer, primary uh, supplier of technology to the, these sort of high tech spies that are seeking to protect us against um, this sort of extreme criminal and and radical organizations so you know when you're looking at a character like iron man what you're looking at is a is a set of ideas about security coming from the united states and that are popularized through through a number of different um popular entertainment mediums be it television be it film and central to that of course is the dependence on the united states in terms of the technological superiority uh, you mm -hmm. can think about that idea uh, undergirding many of the positions of the national administrations in post-war era from Eisenhower with his new look and emphasis on, on mutual assured destruction to the, the Kennedy administration and the new frontier and, and their use of uh, high altitude uh, planes to the spy on Russia. I mean, there's always a technological edge that is driving the United States to invest very heavily and its military industrial complex and also forces the United States at some level to engage very directly in the race to the moon because they don't mm -hmm. want to have this, this you know, fall behind in missile technology. And then they don't want, of course, 
the specter of like uh, Soviet domination of space, and so that that justifies the money spent on a space program. Uh, and and every one of these ideas plays itself out in the pages of Iron Man. Mm-hmm. When when that when this country decides that Vietnam was a bad idea, you have a flashback set of stories in Iron Man where he flashes back to his origin and thinks through how that was a failure. What you know, there's a line in that story where he talks about, I don't even know what we were doing there. Well, he was selling weapons there, right? Like yeah. he's yeah. Uh, but you know he's reflecting on a set of ideas so it's a character very much connected to american security narrative it's very much connected to understanding the the central nature of um the military industrial complex right Mm -hmm. the centrality of technology to that um this idea uh, really a persistent idea that is incredibly more complicated now about the technological edge of the United States providing the kind of security that will allow us to continue moving forward. And that's just, yeah. you know. I think that's, there's um a lot there that I, when I think about the legacy of Tony Stark in the MCU by comparison, and obviously they have that, uh, that, you know, sort of beat for beat recreation in Iron Man one, right. Of him being captured in Afghanistan, that kind of thing. And, and sort of the issue of, weapons and we see this even more with like you know civil war and the, the the casualties of you know the the tech that he uses and what have you um i wonder what the future of stark industries is going to be in the mcu now that he's no longer there, there right? because he yeah. he did have a turn of conscience at some point and we can debate whether or not that was meaningful and how that factors into his his arc and as whether it's a redemption story or not but um yeah so you know that's really interesting mm-hmm. and, and i always like to talk to students about you know, the different iterations of a character like Tony Stark. So when you talk about the Tony Stark you see in the MCU, mm-hmm. that is a character that is really borrowed very heavily from a different imprint of Marvel Comics, right? This is the Ultimate yeah. U- Universe imprint. Yeah. But it's also borrowing from a reboot of Tony Stark in what we call the 616, this sort of like mainline Marvel Universe. Right. It's because Warren Ellis wrote a series called Iron Man um, in 2007, no, even earlier than that, probably 2005, 2006, where he rebooted Iron Man's origins to be Afghanistan. Okay, yeah. Right, and and up until Mm -hmm. that point, that had not been the origin story for Iron Man. Mm -hmm. It it had remained Vietnam. But of course, well into what would be um, the war on terror, it made perfect sense to reboot the story. And in fact, it doesn't really change anything, except that it, 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 it ties Iron Man directly to uh, anti-terrorist yeah. idea. Whereas before, you could you, you tied Iron Man directly to a, a Cold War containment idea. And it's also interesting because it gets into this uh, mechanic in comics of having to recontextualize stories, right? right? Yeah. When they happen, that kind of thing. Like, for example, how many years has Steve have uh, Steve Rogers been frozen, right? Right, uh, right. Because yeah. originally it was 20, 
years ish. Uh, he goes to he goes under in the in World War Two and then comes out in the sixties. Right, yeah. right, right. And then and then you're talking about Vietnam earlier. You know, he has those uh, stories where he goes to Vietnam but is decidedly not in the war. Right. Uh, so like he rescues a football player uh, who was a helicopter pilot who was shot down. He rescues him from um, the Vietnamese. And then there's, but I think it turns out there's a sumo wrestler who's co- sort of coordinating the whole thing, or something along those lines. If you remember I that, I don't, I don't remember that. Yeah, I it's, go it's, back there. yeah, it's it's wild. Um, so you have stuff like that. But anyway, uh, but, but I, this, I do want to go yeah. to your point. Like when you mm-hmm. think about how Tony Stark in the original timeline, when he has this change of heart, how does he? Uh, mm-hmm. How does Stark Industries sort of like continue to be? Yeah. A major sort of technological entity. Well, he doesn't make weapons anymore, but he does do defensive systems. That's he, one. Well, that, that that is one thing that he does. And um, Pepper and, Potts could redirect the uh, the way that the company goes, right? Right. Yeah. And and I think this is one of the things that's really interesting about the MCU. The idea that Tony Stark is the primary weapon. Mm-hmm that we associate you know that is the iron man armor and tony stark as a, an adventurer is a primary weapon employed by the government in a kind of you know quote unquote peacekeeping um idea in the marvel cinematic universe that idea is hyper simplified in the marvel imprint that inspires it mm-hmm. it's true that tony stark is still working for shield he's still making weapons but he's making but he's a member of the avengers and so um a lot of his weapons work is tied up in being a member of the avengers and and improving his armor and finding those wars and it's a little bit muted how sark industries as a company in that imprint how it was sort of continuing to function right like it's still making things it's still a major government contractor but they they kind of drift away from what weapons are being made and what weapons are not um those ideas are explored over time in runs by matt fraction um related to when he wrote wrote iron man for his his very long run um but it remains a a question because you can see this in the marvel cinematic universe iron man doesn't want to make weapons but in not want to make weapons he makes the best weapon imaginable and so he always yeah. has to manage that access to that weapon yeah. which is why you have these very complicated stories with James Rhodes War Machine yeah. because he's a proxy for Iron Man his armor's not as good but he's very directly yeah. under control at some level of the US military industrial complex so they can deploy him in a way that allows Iron Man not to be in constant conflict with the U.S. government in terms of access to his armor technology. It's a deflection of responsibility and culpability on some way while still also feeding into that machine. Um, One of the things that came to mind when you were talking about, uh, if I heard you right, you know, sort of S.H.I.E.L.D. operating as a sort of, you know, fascist uh, entity uh, with the surveillance (laughs) apparatus. There's a line in, um, in Endgame uh, where they go back in time, where Steve and Tony go back in time to Camp Lehigh, right. uh, where they're trying to find, you know, what's, what, uh, I think they're trying to find Steve. Tesseract. Or, no, uh, yeah, yeah. Tesseract, yeah. No, 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 they're going back to find, um, is it Zola? Shoot. 
There's no, when a, they go back to Lehigh because they lost, they mm-hmm. lost the test, right? And so they're like, I know a place where we can go to yeah, get yeah, it, yeah. right? Like, and so right, they yeah. go back there. Sorry. Um, um, and also, but, like, I want to make it clear that, like, the fascism that we associate with S.H.I.E.L.D. is a fascism uh, that we associate with, like, post-9-11 securitization. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Right? But it's, that coming. Yeah, but it's positioned in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a almost like as a response to um, mm-hmm. a kind of Cold War. Yeah. That's, like, there's an interposition of this kind of Cold War uh, framework in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to explain... Mm-hmm. Um, our securitization culture. Yes, right, and the, and, and it's very, it's very clever. <laughs> clever is the wrong word, but it happens all the time. And I always point out that it's an interposition. Like they're mm-hmm. borrowing from a set of stories that are about a Cold War containment character mm-hmm. and processing them through a character that's been reimagined through post nine eleven. Yeah, and those two things are in a playing in your head and theirs are not the same thing mm-hmm. right they're, yeah. they're not the same thing like they're yeah. one's eight you know symmetrical conflict between two global powers others you know a kind of asymmetrical highly individualistic set of conflicts that are mm-hmm. not strictly speaking this you know it's not it's they're not equal like there's this way more complexity sure to, to what's driving quote unquote opposition to American power at some level in, in a modern mm-hmm. contemporary context. But that doesn't come through in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because it yeah. is a place where like Americans, that is American culture, is trying to work out what is the role of power well, in I mean, that's an why asymmetrical they, world, right? That's why they gave the Ten Rings, right, as like the sort of articulated enemy in Iron Man, because it's easier to have the uh, military go after a particular entity as opposed to the War on Terror being this war on an abstract idea, right? right that becomes uh, a sort of boogeyman that we can put anywhere that we choose to send troops, that sort of thing. But the line that stood out to me was Tony Stark says, "Now, if I were a quasi-fascist organization hiding a super weapon, where would I put it?" And that line about him referring to S.H.I.E.L.D. as quasi-fascist was like, to me, like a uh, like a wink and a nod at like the actual commentary that's going on. And Right. But, you know, of course, he's saying that in the context of you, us having the audience knowing that, oh, by the way, S.H.I.E.L.D. has been infected by Hydra. Yeah. Yeah. But th- yes, I agree. <laughs> but what's to me, what's great about that is that like that's them flirting with actually saying the thing out loud that they probably should that shield conceptually was a was a threat to everything, including itself. But the other thing is that it's also a reference to the fact that his father was working for shield. Right. Right. And like his, and his origins, father helped found shield. Yeah. Right. And right, his, yeah. his origins are rooted in this entity that is inherently all consuming and authoritarian. Um, and so it's always sort of, to me, that's, that was a, a thing that I kind of wish they would have dug a little more into. Now you see that with like, obviously like uh, Iron Man two and Iron Man three, where he's trying to deal with the consequences of his actions a little bit, right? but like the, I know it's maybe become a bit trite to say, but I don't know if Tony Stark could have been the hero. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like he was always in, tied to that element of villainy. Um, maybe he, I mean, so I guess in my mind, it's like him dealing with that legacy is like Sisyphus, right? Pushing the, the boulder right, up, yeah. up the hill. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the great thing about Tony Stark is that he so perfectly encapsulates the limitation and, and aspirations of American power, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? You know, and you can see this in the Avenger films. Like, what are you trying to do when they're doing? You know, when he makes Ultron, I'm trying mm-hmm. to protect people. Is mm-hmm. that what you actually did, though? Yeah. <laughs> is that what you actually did, though? What you actually did is um, made a thing that got out of control and hurt a lot of people. And that pretty much describes, at some level, American foreign policy on mm-hmm. numerous occasions, right? Like, they may, in fact, have, and it's no, there's no getting around this. Like, it, yeah. it, it, is, it is probably too simplistic to point out that not everyone in the world is in favor of the United States in some ways that are fundamental. But I think that's a controversial take, Julian. You're going to have to right, stay yeah, that argument. I know. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, the overreaction to why people might have take issue on the part of the United States, you know, it, it's given rise to like all manner of nightmares, right? Like, sure. Why don't you just talk to these people? Like, at what point is diplomacy, you know, a failure in the American? Now it seems like diplomacy is always a failure, but that was not always the case. Well, and 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 I and I wonder, you know, um, with some of the sort of fallacies around technology and the military-industrial complex increasingly coming under um, under pressure in the light of like contemporary realities. Are we going to rediscover some balance between talking to people who are not our enemies versus like just trying to armor up literally and figuratively to overcome the possible attacks? Because now, you know, mm-hmm. in a world of asymmetrical threats, the, the enemies aren't out, outside. Yeah. Some of them are here. Yeah. You know. Well, and the the. um I'm sorry, I had the thought, when you said Ultron, I just, for some reason, it occurred to me the first time that maybe Ultron is like a perverted version of the Iron Giant, and that hurts my heart a little bit, because um, <laughs> that's such a good movie. Um, but you would think that, you know, a as we record this, we have, we are within a year of the conclusion of the war in Afghanistan, which, right, which is about 20 years or so, uh, roughly, and a... Uh, not dissimilar from the conflict in Vietnam. And you would hope that that kind of conflict would lead us to the rediscovery of diplomacy, right? Um, no. I'm an optimist. Don't, don't shake your head. <laughs> I'm, come on now. We have to have some degree of hope. Look, people right. can't see right so, now because we're doing this on Zoom, but your background is Doctor Who. And the 12th Doctor had a great line where he said that uh, war is the stuff you do. Uh, war is what fools do in between talking, right? So <laughs> I have true. to keep some hope, right? And and I and I too want to have hope, but the fact of the matter is, is that and I was talking to a colleague about this recently because at some level, you know, if you if you, you do a sort of survey of popular culture, what what is the dominant narrative? There and it is a narrative of a system under stress mm-hmm. with um, not one hundred percent clear pathways to not being under, not to success. Right, like so, it's like yeah, we keep going down this road. It's parable of the solar right now. We're getting to parable of the solar, parable of the sour. Like you know, like you know, it's Octavia Butler's parable of the solar. Then after Parable of Sawyer, what do you get? Like you get Parable of the Talents. Neither one of those, that whole world 
still has government, mm-hmm. right? Um, For those still, not familiar, that is a climate dystopian novel. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a climate dystopian. But but the details, man, the details. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're, yeah, 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 yeah. All of them. We haven't. We we got the pandemic, right? Like we. Yeah. You remember? It? Yeah. And all this happens before the novel opens, by the way. Yeah. So, like, what yeah. you're living in, in parables, oh, you're living in the world after the pandemics. We're in the prologue right now. And, right, yeah, right. Oh, the prologue. You know, like, and, you know, you're like, and, it, and they allow for um, debtors' prisons to come back. And you're like, okay, I want to believe that. And, I, and, and there's a way you can read our current level of, like, political upset as this, mm-hmm. that there's a reckoning where we are trying to reconcile some fundamental failures of the system that mm-hmm. were there at the beginning and we're trying to work through breaking from that and imagining a future where we don't repeat those same mistakes and that is in itself an incredibly stressful thing yeah right yeah. like it it you could be doing all the same things that we're doing now and at the other end of this living in a much better world but you also be doing all the things you're doing now and living in parables. So, and like, I don't got, sometimes I think of myself, my job in this, in this prologue is to like push for the good outcome. Yeah. In the I way that so. my job will allow for, <laughs> well, you know, we work in academia. We both have colleagues yeah. who talk about the revolution. And I'm like, you know, people get killed in revolution. That's, that's the thing. I feel like it's important to underscore. I have a, I have a <laughs> inherent distrust of anyone who like talks too freely about revolution? Revolution, as, right? Yeah, I'm like because as someone not, mm, as yeah. someone who's been on food stamps, I feel like folks right. who talk that way fail to remember that what is constant in revolution is that poor people suffer and die. Right. The outcomes may be better marginally, but yeah, yeah. so <laughs> right, anyway. yeah, yeah. I'm the same way. I'm like, you know, poor people, and you know, the other thing is like the people who will say it are often the people who are like all about that. I'm like, well, did you understand? You're those people going down the river sticks in this this yeah. <laughs> this yeah. this this version of reality that you're conjuring, right? Like as long as we're clear what's about to happen, okay. But if we're not clear, I really wanted to pause and go like, are there ways that we can modify the system so that people don't get killed? Mm-hmm. Is that is uh, that a possibility? I don't to, know. Uh, to paraphrase some of the scholars from the Frankfurt School in the 1930s, uh, reflecting on the the you know uh, revolution in Russia, uh, boy, that was rough. Let's not do that again. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So no. So a- as we as we come to a conclusion, um, I-, I think this is a-, a good point to sort of to harp on, and that is that you know our our comics, like all literature. And like all art, or all most art and most literature, can be useful for understanding not just where we are at that particular time, but also how we envision the future and and what our vision of a maybe not utopian, but a less dystopian future could be. I suppose. Um, so, uh, any any sort of uh, parting thoughts on that, uh, Julian? As we go. Yeah, I think one of the things about comics that that are very especially in is their ability to be a space of mediation on the possibilities around mm-hmm. um, you know the values we hold to. I mean Asia Heroes in particular is a superhero centric uh, book because I study superheroes and uh, that is despite how people might feel the mm-hmm. genre of comics in the United States 
that has the most sort of currency. Yeah. Um, in comic studies, people don't particularly like superheroes for obvious reasons. Uh, but what do you see in a superhero story is an, an effort on the part of a society writ large to hold on to values that they think are very important, mm-hmm. but also at some level articulate those articulate those values to the changing dynamic in terms of expectations and aspirations. And and sometimes those are really subtle changes, but sometimes those are really, really strong um, mediations on power, really strong mediations on, on authority mm-hmm. that are useful for us to sort of think through, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people want, at some level, superhero characters. They are the neighbors that you want. They are the citizens that you hope for because, mm-hmm. you know, if you yell fire and a superhero's around, they're going to come help you. Yeah. If you say, I need help, they're going to help you. And also, they are, have the resources to do so. And at some level, I think we, we struggle with um, a kind of suspicion that our system is, is yet to live up to these sort of basic promises sure. in terms of protection, in terms of, of, of providing the kind of space where we can be full equal citizens in a way that we we imagine that we should be able to be in the fulfillment and, of the social contract on some level right yeah. Yeah. yeah um and it's odd because of course vigilantism which is at the heart of the superhero archetype is a a a remedy in a system where authority is weak right yeah. like you know, if we you know go back to sort of like classic studies, right? We accept the vigilante when "quote unquote" normalized authority doesn't have the ability yeah. to to do something, right? Like superhero stories are, are are anachronistic in part because they they take place in a world where there is plenty of authority. They just can't stop things, yeah. And that really speaks to a kind of like mythological frustration we have with our society not living up. To the ideas that we have for and and empowering these mystical figures to sort of like hammer hammer away and provide mm-hmm. um, some sort of relief, some sort of solace for what we're looking for, and it, and it's always yeah. interesting to think about it that way. I think you're right. I think you're right. They speak to our anxieties on some level and uh, and, and our our wishes for comfort. Um, so. Uh, Thanks for uh, spending this time with us. Um, Julian, where can people find you if you want to be found? <laughs> uh, well, you can always look me up on the internet. My my website is julianchambliss.com. On Twitter, I'm at julianchambliss. Uh, my name is my name. I'm usually, I'm not, I'm not hard to find. Julian is, and Chambliss are two fairly, they're not the most common names. So if you Google me, it's usually 90% of the time, it's me. <laughs> Yeah. You also you also cast a large shadow again because you. I'm tall. Are, that's true. I'm no, super you, tall. I was yeah. saying because you're doing stuff all the time. But sure, why not? You're tall too. Um, and anyway, all right. Uh, so uh, and of course, you know, folks know they can find me at uh, on TikTok at doctor dot underscore c and on Twitter and Instagram at ga cruz underscore phd. Thanks, folks, for uh, coming by the office hours. We'll see you next week.